0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Welcome, everyone, to the Commonwealth Club. I am Dr. Emily Silverman. I'm an internal medicine physician based at UCSF, and I'm also the creator and host of The Nocturnus, which is a medical storytelling live show and podcast. I'm here because. During the pandemic, the Nocturnists collected audio diaries from frontline clinicians about their experience with the pandemic, and that became an audio documentary. And those clips have since been archived at the US Library of Congress. And I was in the middle of doing all of this work when I was uh, lucky enough to be introduced to Philip Zelikow, who led the COVID crisis group, and invited to join this illustrious. Group of experts, and I'm so thrilled to be here today uh, with this panel, who I'll introduce in a minute to talk about the book, which is finally here. It came out yesterday, and um, I'm really looking forward to this evening's discussion. Um, The book, as I mentioned, is uh, out. It's called Lessons from the COVID War. It was authored, you could say, uh, by 34 different people, experts, um, including the four of us, who wanted to capture how Americans face the worst peacetime catastrophe of modern times. And the book is for sale right outside this room, and we'll be signing copies after the program. Uh, Before we jump in, a reminder, we would like your questions and participation this evening. So if you have a question for any of our speakers or for me, and if you're here in person, just write them on the paper card that we have with your seats. And if you're watching online, put your questions into the YouTube chat feature and they will be forwarded to us throughout the program. Uh, I hope that we'll be able to get to as many of those questions as possible. Uh, So before we begin, I'd love to introduce this panel. Uh, With me today, we have Dr. David Relman. David is the Thomas and Joan Merrigan Professor in Medicine and a Professor of Microbiology and Immunology and a Senior Fellow of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Welcome, David. (laughs) I feel like we all deserve a a round of applause. Um, Next, we have Dr. Robert Rodriguez, Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. And we have Dr. Charity Dean, the CEO and founder and chairman of the Public Health Company. Thank you, Charity, for being here. And thanks to all of you for being here as well to have this conversation. So as we discussed, there were 34 authors on this book, a very eclectic group, lots of different people, different backgrounds, different areas of expertise. So let's just go down the line and maybe introduce yourself uh, who are you? How did you get involved in this group? And what is your corner of the world, your expertise that you brought to the table in this group?
1: Well,
2: as you've heard, I'm David Relman. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And it was a pleasure being a member of this group um, that led to to the work that we're talking about tonight. My training is as a microbiologist and infectious disease clinician. My career has been largely focused on research, laboratory research, and in particular studying how bacteria cause disease, developing methods for detecting new bacteria uh, or previously unrecognized bacteria that cause disease, and then thirdly studying what we call the human microbiome, which is the, the communities of, of microbes that make the human body their home. I have spent a fair bit of my time professionally um, studying enigmatic illness, trying to solve public health uh, mysteries, especially those that have some national security implication, um, such as the the 2001 anthrax letters, um, for which I served and helped lead a, a committee that reviewed the FBI's um, case based on science. I have also spent Um, more than a decade, chairing a group at the National Academy of Medicine called the Forum on Microbial Threats that was dedicated, is dedicated, to understanding why microbial diseases emerge and and the reasons behind that phenomenon. And currently serve on another committee at the National Academies that is focused on um, what are called emerging infectious diseases and 21st century threats. And it was that committee that was already in place when this pandemic began. And we were asked as a committee to respond quickly to questions about the science, what kinds of science um, bear on pressing questions of public health policy um, relevance as the pandemic began to unfold. Um, And then finally, I, I would just add that as a scientist, I spent the year 2020 looking at what was known and not known about our understanding of the origins of the pandemic and became concerned towards the end of 2020 that we seem to have not only a very imperfect understanding of the issue, the origin issue, but we're also beginning to engage in what seemed to me a dysfunctional conversation about that topic. And I felt motivated to write about that problem and the need for a truly objective and fair investigation of how this pandemic began. It was that setting that um, I think led Philip Zelikow to reach out and ask whether I would join this group. And I was more than delighted for a number of reasons that I hope you will understand by the end of the evening.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: So I'm Rob Rodriguez. Um, I am a emergency physician and critical care physician. I practice at San Francisco general. Um, and I focused on two aspects of the pandemic, uh, for this project, for this book. The first was the impact of the pandemic on ERs, ICUs, and especially frontline providers. And I have a couple of my colleagues here from San Francisco general and, uh, the first year of the pandemic, you know, remembering back to those that first dark year, it was brutal for for us in the ER. It was, you know, we were basically the only the only game in town, the only place that was open uh and we were uh you know, inundated with this new uh disease, patients with this new disease, often afflicting young people um, not solely uh hitting the elderly as was kind of put forth um, uh in in terms of misinformation and uh you know that pandemic that uh that being thrust into that environment where there was no vaccine, we had concerns about p p e there were very limited therapeutics that first year. And um, that had a huge impact on the well-being of of, uh, providers in the emergency department, you know, paramedics, uh, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, uh, had uh, massive uh, consequences on on that population. We launched a study, in fact, a national study of the impact of the pandemic on uh, the mental well-being of frontline providers, and we found that uh, over over half of them had uh severe anxiety and um o- over 20% of them had uh full blown signs of full blown uh PTSD and so the again the the result of that um initial year was a work a workforce that is uh burnt out and so uh, one of the aspects that I discussed in, in the book and, and through my other work on, uh, on the uh, Biden-Harris advisory team was addressing workforce issues um, in, the, in the pandemic. The second issue that I, I looked at um, or that I focused on was the disproportionate effect of the pandemic on uh, underserved uh, communities, on disadvantaged communities and so uh specifically african-american latino and uh and under resource communities just poor communities in general so um here in the bay area you know we were hit pretty hard for the by, uh, by the pandemic but uh it really uh um was a stark contrast to to um the other work that I did during the pandemic, I volunteered um, to work uh, that first summer in my hometown of Brownsville, Texas. And so uh, that was just a, a major eye-opening experience for me. Um, you had San Francisco on, on the one side, which the population in San Francisco is about 800,000. Um, the median income is about 140,000, more or less. Um, and uh, when I was working here, uh, in the ER and the ICU I always had large teams of doctors uh, and uh, residents and and you know big big teams to help care for the the COVID patients that we had and Then, when I went down there in, uh, to Brownsville, which in, by contrast the Brownsville and the surrounding community population is about four hundred thousand, the median in- income is a tenth of of the median income in San Francisco, it's like ten ten to twelve thousand. And uh and uh they're just soup really under resourced. So I jumped into that IC, uh, makeshift ICU and it was just a a stark contrast and I saw uh terrible disparities uh between the two locations. Um when when I was working there I'd be taking care of five to eight times as many patients and I was operating solo and we rent, we, we would run out of medications. There were no vent- ventilators. There was simply no place to put in, put anybody. And so, um, you know, it had a big effect on me. and, and so, um, I've, uh, since that time, uh, tried to, uh, um, uh, bring attention to that disparity. And, uh, the, the real numbers, all of that translates into big differences in uh, mortality. So, uh, in August of 2020, in San Francisco, there, again with a population of about 800,000, there were uh, 70 deaths in, uh, by August of 2020. In contrast, uh, in Brownsville and that surrounding area, which had, ha- has half the population, there was uh there were 700 deaths 10 times as many deaths so um i try to in this project i try to bring attention to um to those two aspects and um yeah that's that was my focus
3: thank you charity i'm happy to be here with you um my background has been a journey i'm not sure how much it matters i'm i'm happy to repeat some of it but um My mission is to build solutions. I love systems, top to bottom. I think of myself as a systems hacker, because I've had to work in one of the most difficult non-systems, which is the US public health non-system. I started out uh, general surgery, I switched to internal medicine, so I'm an internal medicine doc, and went to Tulane, because it was the only place in the country I could get a master's in tropical medicine, which I loved. The gnarlier the disease, the better. Um, Combined with trauma surgery and living overseas a few times, I I love managing crises where you have to make a really fast, probabilistic decision based on a differential diagnosis, a branching rule set. You have three seconds, and the stakes are high. So when I joined the local public health department as a disease controller in charge of tuberculosis control and became local health officer, it felt like a perfect fit, simply because I applied that algorithmic fast thinking to disease outbreaks. Um, Ended up joining the state of California. I served under Governor Brown and then Governor Newsom, which was a total delight. And in that role, uh, did a stint as state health officer and oversaw the healthcare system for California. So licensing and certification and um, loved everything public service. When COVID started, uh, I was pulled in to run the team responding. That's not the entire story. It's told better in the premonition. Um, And decided to leave public service out of the conclusion that the capability that had to exist had to be built from Silicon Valley. And that was a shock to me that the technology existed. And I met Philip and team because they were interviewing me to understand the role in in the very beginning of the pandemic. What were the system challenges? What is the U.S. public health system? You know, I've run diseases as a local health officer. I describe it as being a street fighter. Um, I've run them as a state health officer for 40 million people. And so he pulled me in to share, and it was a surprise to me. I remember meeting Rob on that meeting, pulled me in to share more about how the system works tactically on the ground. What does that mean with COVID? And what could be solutions moving forward? So that's really my obsession is... I have to be careful for myself to take an inventory of the problem for the purpose of arriving at what are the solutions that have to exist. So I think it's really easy for me, I know, to get into despair by how bad of a failure this was. And so I I really do focus on what are the system solutions for a whole of society, whole of government, whole of private sector response.
0: The title of the book is Lessons from the COVID War. So I do want to go down and talk about lessons, but with an eye toward solutions, as you mentioned. And I think one thing that's so great about this book is it lays out the lessons, but the solutions flow logically from those lessons. And it's actually quite um, concrete coming away from the book. What needs to happen and what needs to change, or at least the beginnings of a plan for what needs to happen and what needs to change. So, um, maybe we'll start with you, David, Um, with origins. There's a whole section in the book about the origins question. Um, We talked offline a bit about the question of origins and the uncertainty around it. Just curious, what is maybe your favorite lesson from that section, and then any solutions or um, thoughts about how to move forward from
3: that lesson?
2: Sure. Um easy <laughs> um, and the one that we're so um sort of careful about uh well, I mean it maybe just to kind of provide a little context um origins questions are hard by almost by definition. No epidemic or pandemic has been solved within days, typically, and there are often a lot of factors that have to be considered different kinds of evidence and data collected and then carefully assessed. And so I don't think that, that anyone had the illusion that by mid-January or February of 2020, we'd have a clear answer about how this pandemic began. But I do think that we all expected that the process of trying to um, establish the right questions and identify the right kinds of information needed and then a process for pursuing it would be something that we would have fairly well organized and have thought through ahead of time. That was not the case. And in fact, things in some ways began to unravel as the public discussion began to take on tones of um, accusation and suspicion, skepticism about the very business of investigating an outbreak. The way we are left with this question today is still with two basic kinds of possibilities. One is the typical um, uh, scenario by which most epidemics and pandemics ha- are, are thought to have begun, which is through what's called a spillover, um, an encounter between the natural reservoir of the microbe at hand, and a human, and a transmission event that sometimes isn't recognized at the time. Um, We're doing a lot of things as humans to make those encounters much more likely and frequent and diverse. So that's option one. Option two had to do with the fact that this pandemic began in a city about a 1,000 miles away from the closest known reservoirs of the most closely related viruses to this one, and in a city that was known to have a number of laboratories that happened to be the world's leaders in exploring and understanding and studying and collecting the very viruses, family of viruses, uh, from which this one was clearly related. So, two possibilities. Natural, let's say, and the other laboratory-associated or research-associated. And right now, we still have huge amounts of uncertainty about um, which of those two might might be more or less likely, but I think we would all agree that both are plausible and that we haven't yet acquired the kind of information that would allow for a, a definitive answer. Now, to me, the lesson really is how are we going to go about dealing with problems that are complex, politically charged perhaps, and difficult um, when we have a paucity of information. How do we address the problems of uncertainty and proceed in a methodical and productive manner? And that's where I think there are some really critical um, observations that we've made, which will lead to some suggested um, uh, proposals going forward. The issue at hand is, how do we position ourselves to be better aware, situationally aware, of the possible scenarios, the possible sources of an outbreak? And then once we have the earliest indicators that one has begun, how do we pursue those options in a deliberate, careful, objective, and open and transparent manner? And I think we've learned a number of things about how not to do that by virtue of that, have some ideas of how we ought to be um, positioning ourselves to do this better. And I think there are a number of, of possible suggestions that we can offer with respect to the role of institutions that currently are not properly authorized or even aware that this might be their their role, the ways in which those institutions and the individuals running them speak to each other and share information, and then the kinds of... of complementary data that are going to come from non-traditional sources. That's one thing that we highlight in this report, is the unusual role of non-traditional collectors, non-traditional analysts that bring to the table immensely valuable knowledge, background, expertise, and that ought to be marshaled in the future in a more, again, deliberate and organized fashion.
0: Before we move on to you, Rob, maybe just a quick follow-up on that, this idea of public health intelligence. And I think one thing that's so interesting about the pandemic is framing it as a war and really viewing it as an issue that straddles public health and national security. And is it a science problem or is it a war problem? And kind of using both of those frameworks to look at the problem. When I think of public health intelligence, I think of things like Um, you know, making sure other countries aren't, for example, developing biological weapons or things of that nature. But that's a very narrow way of thinking about public health intelligence. So wondering if you have any thoughts about these non-traditional examples that you speak of, um, what might that look like? Or do you have an example? Or how do you think about public health intelligence?
2: It's a great question. And again, a difficult one. But as you suggest, historically, we have separated these two realms of effort and information, one typically um, in the hands of public health agencies, clinicians, epidemiologists, field workers, um, ecologists, etc., those that operate in the open, those that operate through traditional forms of science um, with the purpose of understanding natural phenomena. The other camp, which again, typically doesn 't speak often to the first is the camp occupied by those that that are national security experts. They operate in closed worlds in worlds where secrets are um, are collected and and then protected, and they use methods that in some ways are similar, in some ways different. Both attempt to be rigorous and challenge their assumptions. But again, they don't speak to each other. And there's a deep suspicion of each by the other. And and in particular, a suspicion that I think is not helpful by public health agencies like the CDC of those that operate with classified information or information that's been obtained through through these non-open means. Um, The funny thing is that the CDC itself has historically operated a group called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And its purpose is to investigate outbreaks. But they, they their culture is, is a bit different. And unfortunately, they don't think carefully about the importance of forensic methods that they themselves often um, use without calling as such. Meanwhile, the national security folks are also suspicious of those that are willing to talk with possible adversaries or not be so mindful of provenance and other typical forensic um, concerns. So I think, you know, the solution is going to have to, and we're going to probably talk more about solutions, but it's going to have to think in a different way about how do we build um, an infrastructure that allows both to collaborate and perhaps others to operate in between, to me, these lines can't be so clearly drawn. When something begins, you simply don't know. It might have been natural. It might have been accidental. It might have been deliberate. And and that's, that's the whole nature of all of these problems. In fact, even more than just outbreaks, many phenomena in the world around us are exactly of that ilk.
0: In the book, we learn about the various intelligence failures um, that happened in the United States, uh, the collapse of the federal response, and what one uh, interviewee described as what seemed like a boulder heading downhill toward states and communities and hospitals. And this is where you live. Um, mm-hmm. It's where I live too, um, internal medicine physician, emergency medicine. And so you were right there on the uh, quote-unquote battlefield, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, you spoke a bit about comparing and contrasting your time in a well-resourced community like uh, San Francisco and Brownsville. Um, maybe you could say more about, again, as we talk about solutions, how do we think about resource management, equity, um, hotspots, the fact that a pandemic doesn't just hit one place, it's dynamic. It heats up over here and then it dies down and heats up over here. Um, curious what your thoughts are about that.
1: Yeah, so um the the uh emergency and disaster management system uh, it was and I'd say still is archaic. It wasn't built to deal with a multi-site uh pandemic or multi-site crisis. It was built to deal with uh natural disasters like a hurricane or or floods or you know earthquakes and things like that. And so uh, the current the past and current system really needs to be revamped it needs to be updated to deal with uh, situations like we faced during the pandemic the pandemic was a um, uh, multiple disasters popping up all over the country multiple hotspots, spots like it was a, a, a whack-a-mole type type situation where you couldn't Uh, You know, the mole would pop up and and by the time the uh, emergency systems would get there, the mole would be back down. It'd be too late. The current um, and uh, past system plods too slowly. It's just not um, not built to deal with this type of this type of issue. And so, for example, if uh, uh, for example, when. You you could predict in a community when they were going to get a a flood, and outbreak. You would start to see uh, test positivity uh, grow in in a particular community. And then, you know, a week later, it followed a, a consistent pattern. A week later, you would start seeing hospitalizations. And then a week later, two weeks later, it would be your ICUs would be full and inundated. And, but by the time the federal government, you know, the, the, uh, current disaster response systems would get there, you know, it, it it would be a, a, a month too late. And that's exactly what I saw. So what needs to, needs to happen is we need to revamp, rethink our emergency response systems. We need to make it more fluid. Uh, we need to make it, um, more transferable. Like there were many, uh, physicians that wanted to you know go help out other communities but you know there were like credentialing issues uh you know you couldn't like get go from state to state and uh you couldn't uh go from hospital to hospital so there are simple re- what i view relatively simple solutions to to, to that problem uh, apply it start a universal credentialing system that can be, um, you know, uh, activated, uh, and also really start to, to set up regional, um, response teams, regional, uh, pandemic response or disaster response teams such that somebody wouldn't have to come all the way from California to, to, you know, to, to the border. They could come from, you know, closer in, uh, to the border of Texas in California, uh, uh, from California to the border of Texas, they could go from a regional place in Texas, and respond down there and help out various communities. So, the one of the lessons that I learned is that um, our we need to update our disaster response system. It needs to be fluid. It needs to be adaptable, and uh, yeah, and you know that's a a, a primary. Um, focus of what we need to do.
0: One of the big take-homes for me from the book was um, people look to the CDC as a disaster response system, but it really isn't. It's really a research institution uh, that isn't designed to operate and to execute in that way, whereas FEMA, for example. Um, does have some of that operational capability, but as you said, is more used to things like floods and hurricanes, where it's a one-time thing, it's time-bound, and it's in one area. It's in no way equipped to handle a crisis of this scale that's um, years long across the entire country, like you said, multiple disasters. And so um, there's a lot more in the book about the different levers that can be pulled and the different resources, um, which I think is worth a visit in the, in the text. Um, Moving on to you, Charity, Uh, I love how you describe yourself as a systems hacker. Um, And so we're kind of going origins to hospital, now maybe back to like big picture, big systems thinking. Um, There was one other thing you said to me, which was that people didn't fail, systems failed. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about systems and maybe a couple of your favorite lessons and uh, possible solutions.
3: Sure. Sure. Thank you. Well, I would say if I, for me, and everyone is going to bring their experiences to this book, uh, which is why I I can honestly say it's the best book I've ever read in my life, uh, because it speaks to my soul of what has to exist. And the 34 co-authors all have a different perspective. And that's important. And it's not a Frankenstein of different opinions. It's it's a carefully woven story, truly nonpartisan, truly expertise of what happened and what do we do. So from a systems perspective, I would say, to me, this book, The Take-Home Message, is that we have a system built in and for the 19th century, which is a beautiful outgrowth of our democracy. We developed it organically in response to cholera and local outbreaks. Um, Paul Revere was the first local health officer, and I love the history of public health. That system was met with a 21st century threat. The world has changed. The ability of these pathogens to travel quickly Uh, between humans has changed. And so I call this a systems failure because the humans didn't fail. I have phenomenal colleagues at the CDC. Local health officers are my heroes. Many many healthcare providers gave their life. They gave their life. Our humans were amazing. And truly, that gives me hope to look at the system and say, okay, in light of, if I were to break that down of where were the system's failures, and we we outline this in the book, number one, it's situational awareness. Very foundation is a lack of a situational awareness that would have enabled a coordinated operational response that could execute with speed and surgical precision. For example, without testing, we were flying blind. When you're flying blind and you're in the containment stage, you have to use broad measures. You can't use surgical precision because you don't know where the threat is. So broad measures like lockdown, um, you know, stay-at-home orders. The most important question at that stage is how many undetected cases are out there or what is the case ascertainment? Because that determines, are we in containment? Do we have a shot? Or are we in mitigation? Or do we run mitigation in parallel? So at the very foundation is the need for situational awareness, and that didn't exist. Um, In my mind... And I sat down and thought about, you know, in light of the findings of the whole group, really what are the guiding principles for a system solution that would have to exist? And from my perspective, it's number one, speed. We have to move faster than a pathogen. With an r naught of 12, yes, indeed. Yes, we do. Number two is scale. We have to move at scale because the world has changed. This thing is going to spread fast. The next one would be Autonomy. How do we design a system autonomous from political influence at every level when every local state and health officer and the CDC director is a political appointee? How do we do that? Um, I would also mention, you know, the whole point of designing this new system is to enable a whole of society response, to move with speed, to move at scale in an autonomous fashion. And that means trust. The American people, every person has a role to play. I do not think in our country that we arrive at the system solutions without a thorough self-searching inventory, and that's why this COVID commission matters. And that's why doing it—I don't want to call it an after-action; it's a during-action. That's why this report matters. That—that that self-inventory is what leads us to identify the gaps and capabilities. Um, I won't go deep into what I see as the system solution, but briefly. For me, there's four pillars. The first one is an intelligence capability. It's an intelligence platform. The software exists today to build that. But the second one is an operational response—a whole of society. Government can't do this alone. Private sector can't do this alone. Academia can't do this alone. Um, the ability to have an operational response that spans whole of society is critical, and we don't have that right now. I'm still not clear who's in charge. I mean, I'll just be honest. I <laughs> I have an idea who's in charge today, but I'm not entirely clear. Um, You know, next, I would say uh, the authority infrastructure. It's pillar three. Right authority in the right position at the right time under the right circumstances so that it is clear who has the authority to make what decision. At the local level and at the state level, that was not clear. And the layered jurisdictional authority of the U.S. truly goes back to the 1700s. And lastly is trust. For Americans to opt in in a warlike environment, which we know they do. We've seen that before. We've seen a whole of society response. They have to have trust that there's a Churchillian-like leader who's going to tell them the truth. Who's going to say, hey guys, this is going to get bad. Here's where, here's how, people are going to die. Here's what we all need to do, and here's what your role is. And if I just believe when Americans are told the truth, they will respond. And we were missing that. We were missing that leadership at the top, sharing how bad it's going to get and what we need to do. So the systems that we built are not just transactional systems. It's to enable Americans to see with transparency what's happening, what is the risk, what can I do, and join together to do that. It's a lot to take in.
0: (laughs)
2: Um,
0: I'm glad that you're in charge of what you're in charge of. Um, So... I want to leave time for questions, so I'll just throw out one final question to the panel and then we'll open it up. This book exists now. Is this the end of the story or uh, is there more to do? Where do we go from here? How do we put this book to work? Um, This was not a formal commission. Do we still need a formal commission? Is there a road to that? Um, What does the future hold uh, for the COVID crisis group? Open it up to the floor.
2: I I would start by saying this is clearly um, a roadmap to how uh, we go about addressing the questions at hand, and uh, and the kinds of information that we still need to collect. This is a it was an effort to learn as much as we could given some relatively limited means and time. But I think we all believed. In fact, when we started, we truly believed there would be a commission, and all we were doing was trying to lay out a blueprint of the key questions and the kinds of information needed and examples of both. But this wasn't meant to be the end-all and be-all, and I think we all believe that um, a deeper dive on a number of these issues is still needed. Um, The other thing that this didn't do and couldn't do was to operationalize or suggest how these lessons might be turned into actionable next steps and then how to test and learn and iterate um, because no initial you know operational plan is going to be perfect from you know from the issues of particular interest to me that I think we still need to to undertake would be to put together um, an infrastructure that allows for a, a rapid, um, objective, and thorough investigation of the earliest stages of, of an outbreak and pursue it to all of its logical conclusions. We still don't have that mechanism truly in place, and it's certainly not present at the international level. And that's where I think we all realize that we had hoped but realize WHO is not able to execute that kind of mission. Um, And perhaps we need something that isn't as official um, and and treaty-bound as uh, an organization like WHO. But we're going to need an international effort, an entity to be defined, that is able to undertake investigations in real time in the way in which we know that they need to be done. The other needed um, to do um, step from my point of view is to step back and and look at both of the possibilities and ask um, Are we uh, properly assessing risk and overseeing and managing risk not only from the point of view of wildlife trade and all the possible ways in which the natural spillover event might have occurred, but also from the point of view of our research activities upon which we depend so heavily and yet today, which entail increasing kinds of risk that I think many of my colleagues are not fully willing to acknowledge, let alone address in a serious fashion. So we need to address both these things going forward in a much more thorough, honest, and um, open manner so that all of you, everyone in this audience and listening, has a voice in how we decide to balance the benefits and risks of the various human activities which absolutely, inevitably led to this pandemic, whether it be through a natural spillover event or a a laboratory-facilitated spillover event.
1: Yeah, so the the COVID war is not over by any means. And um, there are still 250 people dying a day from COVID. There are tens of millions of people who have uh, long COVID now. And uh, there are, you know, variants that are arising and other viruses that are arising. So um, we have a lot to do. Um, we also have a lot to, to do to, to repair our health care workforce. Um, as I s- uh, opened up with, our um, health care workforce is injured. It's, it's, you know, there's a ton of burnout. And they're just, uh, you know, we see it every day in the ER and, and, um, so there are issues that need to be addressed there. And, um, but I think, you know, this book is a, a book of hope. It's, um, it's a roadmap and it's also a book of hope. It, it, it details, um, a lot of the, uh, things that identifies the problems, um, provides some, uh, Potential solutions to those problems, and um, and there, thereby provides hope. I think the the issue, however, remaining is that we we all began this with, um, as Dr. Sherman said, um, we we intending to start a uh, to to develop a COVID commission, and um, you know to be honest, pol- politics kind of got in the way of that. I think that, um, we, uh, I think we do need a, um, uh, a COVID commission. I think that, um, what's missing from, you know, from our report is we, we, we didn't have access to certain people and, um, with And so, uh, without that access, there are certain, uh, details that we, you know, could, could not really address. So, um, I think there's a lot to do. The war's not over. This is a book of hope and we do, um, need, uh, some, uh, uh, access to, to, to the people, to everybody that, um, uh, To get more information about where to go forward.
0: Anything to add before
3: we dive? Uh, I agree with that. I um I would add, I do believe a formal commission is needed, and that is exactly what the United States needs to stand up. Um, I'm also I would also read you know one of the lines from the book that really struck to my soul got me fired up again about the failures uh, was this. This is at the page 113. When he's talking about the next stage, the failure of containment, the failure of leadership, the failure of courage. Like, let's just come down to that. The inability of the United States and the current leaders to operate in uncertainty and lean forward and take risks and tell the American people the truth. And we're about to go into... The catastrophe that unfolds from there, and it says this: in the next stage, every community in America would struggle to defend itself. This is not Boston, seventeen seventy-five, but it felt like it, didn't it? And the abdication to the states—you know, this is a well described by the Constitution. It's the it's the tension between the autonomy of states in a federated system and providing for the common defense. That's how our country is structured, but. To provide for the common defense is a common response. We have to dig into, as, as Rob pointed out, with authority, a COVID commission that can dig in with authority to get the right people interviewed with the right authorities to really deeply understand at a deeper level than we were even able to go, what happened and what do we need to build in light of our beautiful democracy? That's part of the challenge, to build this in a democracy. I believe it's possible, but a formal commission would really help at getting to answers.
1: I would, I, I love what you said, Charity, and um, I would add, you know, for clarification that uh, this was a, a a broad group. It was multidisciplinary and multiple viewpoints. It was not, you know, it was not a a pure blue blue uh, a team. It was a it was a purple team, really, <laughs> and we checked our our. Um, party affiliations at the door during these meetings. And so um, I wish that, you know, and I hope that, you know, Congress and other people w- would listen and that um, and push forward with, uh, you know, a, a, a commission like that.
2: Yeah. I would say I'm, I'm optimistic as well that because as soon as you get people to sit down take a deep breath, and talk about where they're coming from and what they see as the issues, you find huge amounts of commonality. And I actually believe that that's possible at the highest levels of the political system as well. They, they have to be given a safe space to talk without TV cameras on.
0: We have about 20 minutes for questions. Um, so I'll just start going through these. We'll try to get through as many as possible. Um, the first question is about schools. Uh, So the question is, in retrospect, were many officials overly conservative in closing schools and keeping them closed? Many states were less cautious than California and did okay, and many Bay Area private schools opened far earlier than the public schools with few problems. Given the social harm to students learning from home, did we overdo the caution?
1: I don't know who wants to tackle
3: that. <laughs> tackle that. I'm happy to tackle it. Yeah. Um since we're sitting in California, um and I was at the state and even after I left the state, Tony Thurman had an impossible job as the state superintendent. Um they all had an impossible job down to every teacher. Teachers are my heroes. Mm-hmm. Um here's what happens, you know, again in the beginning of Flying Blind. So you know, the principle with schools, there's so much cross-pollination between children that schools really can be a reservoir. And from that reservoir of spread, even if it's asymptomatic spread, it spreads over into the community, can drive case rates, you know, spreads over into nursing homes, et cetera, vulnerable populations. So the ability to have visibility on the schools of where the outbreaks were, where the cases are, was critical. And I've Believe this whole time, testing, had we been able to get early targeted testing into the schools on a regular cadence, they absolutely could have reopened sooner. So the challenge is less about, um, you know, schools staying closed too long. It's more about why weren't we able to deploy at scale rapid tests into the schools with a system where we had a shared visibility of where the high risks were, and test those students on a more frequent basis, it works. And we know it works. We've we've seen it in the systems that have implemented it mm-hmm. so that we don't have to use broad measures. I have three kids. I will 100% agree the damage to children is significant from missing school, from doing school remotely. And the tools existed, and I wish they'd been implemented sooner. Um, I know some of the private schools did open sooner. From what I saw, both at the state and also then in the private sector, It's because they were able to lean forward and implement those tools faster, not just testing, but all of the different risk reduction measures, you know, screening, distancing, moving outside, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that was much harder to do at large scale in the public schools. And they suffered.
0: Fantastic. Um, This is another question about schools, which I think we covered. Uh, This is a question, uh, I think, from online. What do you say to those who question experts who maybe overreacted to COVID and should we have been more targeted in this approach? So I think the question is about experts and the public's orientation to experts, maybe even the concept of an expert in the setting of the pandemic. This sort of goes back into the trust issue that you were talking about. Maybe this is really a question about communication i um, mm-hmm. curious if anyone has thoughts there.
2: I, I do think that it is about communication. It's also about honesty about what you know and don't know and your willingness to explain that in a, in a transparent fashion. A lot of people I knew um, started with certain assumptions which were you know reasonably grounded in what we thought we knew about similar circumstances, and they were willing to test those assumptions based upon early data. But to be honest, we didn't have a lot of good data for all the reasons that you just heard, and because it's hard. And so that's the situation in which we ought to be better at, but at least acknowledge the need for, the means to to undertake research and learn as we go during an emergency, during a public health emergency. A lot of people have begun to write about this, in fact, going back now 10 and 20 years, we simply haven't implemented this with a structure that allows everyone to learn from each other and bounce ideas around in a, in a fair fashion. But what ended up happening with a paucity of information and, and everyone clamoring for answers was too many people willing to extend themselves, mm-hmm. to, uh, to sort of lean on assumptions without, without describing the, the problem of doing so. And getting well ahead of themselves. A lot of people I know well, I was a little bit surprised at. In fact, it's still happening today. And the same breathless newspaper articles being written about some assertions being made by good scientists that they probably should not be making in the way they do. There are a lot of factors involved. But I think, again, honesty and a willingness to stop for a moment and and ask yourself... um, what do we know? On what basis? What don't we know? How to communicate that to a larger public so that everyone's on the same page and understands that there's still some important uncertainties, and we're going to work on those.
0: I'll just chime in briefly to um, mention the section in the book that talks about transmission. So our job was to figure out how is this thing transmitted from one human to another. And it took us way too long to arrive at the conclusion about airborne and versus droplet and the people wiping down their computers in the hygiene theater and and trying to figure out the science of how it was transmitted. And there was a great section in the book about the experts that we looked to, to answer this question and how there were the researchers who had been studying TB for decades Um, But then there were also um, experts in occupational health um, for whom issues of airborne precautions and ventilation were old hat. And so those um, different uh, ways of thinking of who is an expert and how do we get different experts talking to each other, similar to the um, two different schools of intelligence. Um, And so that was one take home I took from that section uh, about uh, Philip really calls it an intelligence failure um, how long it took for us to understand how the disease was transmitted? Um, were you going to add something there?
1: I, I was just going to say um, a, a, a big part of it is is humility um, mm. is is uh, being able to you know when when I walk into a patient's room in the emergency department and and I have a confusing case, I try to be you know I try to be as straightforward as I can. I don't uh, tell them. Uh, a diagnosis or I don't g- automatically give them this diagnosis that I'm not sure of. And um, I try it and, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to be humble. I try, I, I try to say, this is what I know. This is what I'm confident about. And this is what I'm not confident about. And so we, as you know, so-called experts and, and other, uh, other authorities Need to be able to communicate with humility and be able to say that um this is what we believe right now this is what we're not sure about and um and you know and this is the path forward it's okay it's it it it's okay to say i i don't know about this and um there's such a push i believe for um people to you know to to put things in black or white, you know, this is, this is, for example, the cause of COVID. This is how it's transmitted. Um, this is exactly how it's transmitted. Um, and, uh, you know, in that effort to, to give people immediate responses, um, uh, you know, the message fails. And so you have to be humble.
0: There's a question about um, comparing the response of the United States to other countries. Um, and I know in the book, we do touch on uh, countries like South Korea, Germany, Japan. Um, but curious if anybody has uh, an example of a response that went really well in another country that maybe we can learn from here in the United States.
3: Sure, I'll start. Um... And I, I wrote down some notes to myself because, again, as, as I heard others' perspectives about learning and humility, oh, I just love that. It really does come down to humility yes. and understanding more what other countries did. Um, what South Korea did to me was amazing in the beginning. And I think what it comes down to is this. They learned. They learned from previous experiences and said, how might we put together a system to move quickly? Now, they are different than us. They're operating under a different governance. But they had an operational plan ahead of time. And they executed on that plan. And they were able to move fast. And they were able to scale up speed and scale. And they did very well in the beginning. And I think for me, what, what just strikes me is um, the ability to learn from past mistakes. Mistakes can be a gift if we take them and learn and put something in place that works. It's also remarkable to me what the UK did. It drives me bonkers that the United States of America has to get our intelligence on characterizing variants from other countries. Hmm. We still do not have a real-time platform to characterize novel variants as they emerge in real-time in the US. I'm really passionate about genomic sequencing. I think it's the disease control of the future. What the UK did was remarkable. As much as it drives me nuts that we have to get intelligence from other countries, um, I think they deserve an enormous amount of credit for characterizing variants of concern in near real time and doing it in a way that still protected patient data across their healthcare system.
1: Yeah, it's it's a global war. And so, you know, we, we have to take those successes. I was going to use that exact example with South Korea that, you know, we have to learn from them. It's, you know, we... Uh, we are we have a lot of national pride and, and a lot of American pride uh, that sometimes gets in our way. And so um, I think it's OK to to um, learn from other systems and to to use what they their successes. And that's part of the message of the book. It's a global war. It's not us versus, um, uh, you know, South Korea or, or any other country. And so um, it should be approached that way. And uh, you know, I love reading about how well these other countries did. Like a, a, another con- example is a, a country like Chile. Chile did, you know, it's a, not a, not a rich country. They did very well during the early parts of the pandemic. And um, so you know, we we can learn from other countries. Yeah, just to underscore one of the
2: lessons from from the UK that charity alluded to one of the reasons that they were able to undertake that kind of global genomic surveillance um effort was because they have a unified healthcare system that not only takes care of people in a in a sort of a reasonably equitable, organized fashion, but also collects information and marries it with all the other kinds of data that you might need in order to interpret the sequence data that we do know how to generate here, but do so in this balkanized fashion that doesn't allow you to connect who this person was and and what they do and their local networks with the sequence of the virus that came from them. That's something that we ought to learn to uh, consider and, and somehow address here.
0: Uh, here's another question from online. Outside of systems, what specific decisions and policies are you most bothered
3: by looking back? I'll start. <laughs> it's probably not it's going to be controversial, not popular, and both of you might disagree. Well, we probably are all bothered by different things. There's so many. Um, it comes down to this: i it will haunt me the rest of my life. I will never get over the decision to not fight. I will never get over that. We had a shot in January. We had a shot in January. I don't know if containment was possible, but I think it might have been had the systems existed. But even if the systems didn't exist and we're running to the fight with popsicle sticks and duct tape, I don't care. The decision to not fight will haunt me the rest of my life. Which is why I do believe in the end it comes down to courage. We do need a system with which to fight and have visibility. Um, Watching the U.S. government say the risk to the public was low, I don't think I'll ever get over that.
1: Yeah, I would say that, um, thank, I, yeah, thanks for that. I mean, uh, that's wonderful. I mean, uh, very, uh, eloquent. I, I would say that the system that failed me the most is, is the political system. You know, it, it, the moment it became a political issue, uh, we, you know, we were doomed. Um, it, it didn't have to be, it didn't have to become that way. It, you know, it didn't, it, it should, be, it should have been, uh, presented and accepted for what it was, uh, a, a, a horrible disease that's spreading across the country, not a, um, uh, you know, not a, uh, political volleyball. And so the system issue that bothered me the most that, you know, that I think uh, led to the major catastrophe was really the political system you know why why can't we come together for uh for something for something like this you know it it didn't it didn't have to be that way so yeah and
0: and that last sentence it didn't have to be that way is a one of the main i would say theses of this book which is um that it was actually policy failures that led to a lot of that toxic partisan um, aspect of things, uh, that the policy failures created a void, and then all of that toxicity rushed in to fill the void. Whereas if we had had the systems and policies in place, maybe some of that could have been avoided. So I think there's, on the flip side of that, there is a hopeful message that if we're able to um, switch around the way that we respond um Maybe next time, and there will be a next time. I think we can all agree. Maybe you can weigh in on that. Will there be a next time? Um, Absolutely. That, uh, we Absolutely. can maybe do better next time. But well, maybe that'll be my question: is how do we think about next time? I'll ask the the basic scientists in
2: the room. You know, I think I would probably answer that at the same time. I answer your last question <laughs> um, with one thing that really bothered me a lot, which was. Are the U.S.'s unwillingness to share its experience and its data with other nations, and share its resources with other nations? We said, for example, that we were going to make available to the rest of the world um, much of our of our you know wealth in um, medicines and in vaccine and Made early commitments to do so with other parts of the of the world that just don't have the means, and we we didn't really fall through, um, nor did others. But I guess looking forward, I desperately hope that we can find a way to break down some of this um, international politics and nationalism, um, so that we can act more as a global international community. It sounds a little Pollyannish, but it it really hamstruck a lot, of, a lot of the world. It made it impossible for a lot of the world to do as well as it might have um, had we been willing to share more.
0: The term <laughs> vaccine nationalism was one that I hadn't heard until I came across that section of the book. And I think um, it's the final chapter of the book that talks a lot about uh, the fact that this is a global problem, you know, not a state problem. Um, and not even a national problem, a global problem. And uh, I think the book does a pretty good job making the case for um, generosity and cooperation, not just from an altruistic standpoint, but actually from a strategic standpoint. Um, So that's the note that the book ends on. Uh, In terms of where we end on tonight, we just have one minute left, and I'm hoping that we can end on a hopeful note. We have already kind of stated that this is a book of hope, um, but maybe I'll turn it over to you, Charity, because I just love your energy so much and how much you love this book and um, how much you believe in the American people. Um, so maybe just in this last minute, a final word of encouragement to mm-hmm. people who might be intimidated by reading this and um, make the case for hope. Why Why will people come away from reading this feeling hopeful as opposed to feeling like mm-hmm. depressed and
3: dejected? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's really true that my co-authors are phenomenal, and Philip's an amazing writer. Um, we came at this with a total open mind from all of our colleagues' perspective, and we wrote it in a way to be accessible to someone. You know, I have a degree in microbiology and tropical medicine and communicable disease. We, this is plain language. We want everyone to understand the principles here. And to truly represent a whole of society, whole of a political spectrum perspective, so it 's accessible to anyone, um, my hope is always rooted in the DNA of America you know we are we 're a nation of rebels, right like we our whole country was founded by rebelling and saying we believe in independence. The tension between independence and constitutional rights and providing for the common defense or the good of the whole is the oldest argument in public health. I love public health. It's the air we breathe and the water we drink. And the oldest tension is always, how do we protect individual rights, the right to choose, vaccine or not, while providing for the common defense? It's the right question to ask and i also believe that we can provide for the common defense we've done it before we can stand up new systems for the country that do that um but we only do that in recognition of kind of our rebellious nature of autonomy and independence as americans we do that by opting in not by top down mandates we saw top down mandates fail i was the one giving them at times um they don't work in our society um what does work is americans locking arms together and that's why i say The people didn't fail, the systems did, and thank God for that. Because that means we have hope of actually building systems that work. I really believe Americans ran to the fight. We saw the private sector jumping in, donating money, leading efforts across the board, across pharmaceutical and supply chain and enterprise. Um, I really believe that the American spirit can build solutions and that there is political will to do so. But that's also why I'm so passionate about taking a really searching and fearless self-examination of why did this feel like Boston 1775? Why were states left to fend for themselves? And what kind of solutions can be built out of that in a democracy, balancing that tension? I do believe it's possible. I think that's a great place to leave it for now.
0: I know we could probably go on all night, um, but let's end it there. Uh, I'd like to thank the Commonwealth Club for hosting this discussion, this conversation. Um, Thank you, Philip, uh, who isn't here today, but our fearless leader. Thank you. And then to today's panel, Dr. David Relman, Dr. Robert Rodriguez, and Dr. Charity Dean. I have been Emily Silverman. And thank you for being here today. And I encourage you all to pick up the book. There's a bunch outside, and we will be out there uh, and available to sign them. And this program, it says in the script, this program is now adjourned. So they didn't give me a gavel, but, <laughs> but that's it. Um, have a wonderful evening, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.